One of my um, favorite scenes in all of literature is King Lear, Act 1, Scene 1. And in it, we're introduced to a man who is blinded by his own self-importance. Okay, so you may have read this recently. You may have never read it. I'm not so sure. Um, but let me tell you a little bit about what happens. King Lear has, uh, is the king of an entire kingdom, Britain, and he has been king long enough. He's an old guy that he understands what he has achieved. He can look back on all of his accomplishments and say, I have this vast empire. I've done what needs to be done. And I'm sort of going to take a break from ruling. I'm kind of going to go into an early retirement and basically I'm going to split the kingdom up into three parts and give one of each part to my three daughters. The only thing he demands is that they flatter him, that they tell him how great he is, that they worship and praise him and congratulate him for being such a great king, such a great dad. And if you know the story, here's what happens. Even if you don't, I'll explain it to you. Don't worry. Two daughters say, sure, this is our chance to get what we can from this old guy. (laughs) And they turn into the villains in the play. That's Goneril and Regan. And they say, we love you, we worship you, you're wonderful, we'll tell you anything you want to hear. And King Lear says, of course, great. That's what, I want. That's what I was looking for, that's what I was after. But the third daughter will not follow suit. She's the one who actually proves in the end to be the most faithful. Her name is Cordelia. And she says, no, no more, no less. I've done what I could do. I love you, I've served you, I've obeyed you. I am not going to stoop to your level. I'm not going to flatter you. And to reveal how infatuated he is with himself, what does he do? He flies off the handle. He loses control. If you've seen a version of this play, they'll have him standing up on a chair. He's throwing the crown. He's throwing things. He's going crazy. And everybody thinks that anger is Lear's big problem. But his problem is being infatuated with his own self-importance. And he abandons the only faithful daughter that he has. He says, get out of my sight. Get out of my kingdom. You're out of here. And the other two, he says, I'm going to split it all between you. And that sets in motion the action in the play, which is the most brutal, painful, dark, tragic thing you'll ever read in your entire life. Go home and read it tonight. (laughs) I highly recommend it. It's wonderful. (laughs) And in it, the the end result of one man's self-importance is... Ten dead bodies on the stage at the end. I mean, everybody, everybody's dead, and I'm not going to give you the whole plot. It would take too long. And it's not a surprise I didn't ruin the ending. In every Shakespearean tragedy, they're all dead. <laughs> so you should still go home and read it. But Goneril's dead, Regan's dead, Cordelia's dead, Lear himself is dead. Um, and you're just left wondering, is this what life was all about? Was this possibly worth it? And um, I'm going to make a proposition here that that we are actually a lot like Lear. We're a lot like that. We're infatuated with our own um, self-importance. We face a temptation every day, constantly, almost every minute, to fall back and rely on our own ideas, to rely on our own preferences, to turn those preferences into demands, and to use all of these things, ourselves and our own standards, to make some sense out of the world that we live in. And, and our culture only reinforces this. It's really easy to get away with. I read a New York Times article recently by David Brooks, and he was hacking away, criticizing graduation speeches, which is kind of easy to do. You may have heard one recently. They're filled with empty promises. They're filled with hollow advice. And here's what he writes. I actually brought this with me. He says, um, here's what you'll hear in these speeches. Follow your passion. 
chart your course, march to the beat of your drummer, follow your dreams, and find yourself, and he calls it this, I love it, the litany of expressive individualism, which is still the dominant note in American culture. And then he goes on to say, but it's misleading in every way. It's misleading in every way, and I don't have enough time to tell you all about his article, but he goes on to argue that we basically have a generation that has, is so consumed with self-realization, self-fulfillment, self-importance, self-congratulation, that we've even delayed living. We've delayed life. He said, instead of jumping into marriage, instead of jumping into having kids, instead of jumping into settling into a job, he says, we wait until we found ourselves, and that leaves us exposed because what we end up doing... It's chasing after every whim. I got to explore this. I got to check out this option. I've got to see this one. I'm going to take a little bit of everything that comes by. And we've got to be one of the most unhappy generations the world has ever known. I would include myself in that category. I think we must be one of the most unhappy generations the world has ever known. And this is a point of contact with the Corinthians. So even the last two or three weeks, we've seen that the Corinthians are themselves like Lear the Corinthians are like contemporary Americans. They are, um, they're infatuated with themselves. <laughs> they're evaluating um, themselves and one another, and even Paul, based on their own human standard. Standards of flashy rhetoric, who can communicate most effectively, which teacher could gather the most followers, who has the most impressive gifts. And here's what they're missing. They're missing God's perspective, which is huge. All they're left with is themselves. And, you know, it strikes me that you may have come here this morning tired of yourself, frustrated from not fulfilling all of your dreams, wondering what is God's perspective on this life, on myself, on these people around me. And that's true probably if you're a Christian or if you're not. If you have come to church every day for your entire life, oftentimes what you're looking for is how can I get out of myself and understand myself from God's point of view? That's kind of what we've been talking about over the last three weeks. And if you're not a Christian, maybe this is the first time you stepped into a church building, if we can call the brain a church building. <laughs> maybe this is the first time you've come to a worship service in, in your whole life. But you're still probably here wondering what does God have to say to me? Where can I find God's perspective? And Paul gives us an answer. And it is a surprising answer. It is an answer that should shock us. And if it doesn't, beware. He says, the cross of Christ, the crucifixion of a man, a few thousand years ago, is the place that you must go to truly understand God's perspective on yourself and this world. The cross where Jesus died, according to the Paul, is the place where God's power was most fully revealed. He's saying God has revealed himself. God has shown the world what his wisdom is. He has shown the world his, wis his wisdom, his glory, and his power. And if you want to break free from the selfishness that's constraining you, if you want outside of your limited perspective, you have to go there. You have to go to the cross to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. You see, because God has displayed his wisdom and his power at the cross, he is actually inviting you. He's inviting you to see things from his perspective, to see things from the perspective of the cross. And he is saying, allow that cross to shape your life, to shape what you believe, to shape who you are, to shape how you behave. Okay? And that's a radical claim. 
that message should shock you because of the kind of power that we find at the cross. So let's look, first of all, at how the cross shapes our beliefs. I want you to look at verse 18. We're going to start with verses 18 through um, 25. Look at 18. Paul says, the word of the cross is foolishness or folly or, or, or stupidity or, or it's, it's moronic to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of, the God, of God. So the word of the cross, it looks foolish to those who are perishing. What he's saying is the word of the cross looks foolish from a purely human perspective. You have to see it from God's perspective. And why does it appear foolish? Here's why. Listen to what Paul's saying. I want you to like step into the worldview of Christianity for the first time or again for the first time. Paul's coming up. He's a Jew and he enters Gentile territory. So he's a foreigner. And he says, hey guys, I want to tell you good news. Here's the good news. This is what it looks like. Okay, listen. There is a God that you can't see. And you've probably never heard of, and the only people that worship him are like kind of a despised race, the Jews over here. And like he revealed himself, I promise, I swear it's true. And he revealed himself in a man that you've probably also never heard of. And the way he revealed it is he had that guy die and then raise to life again. (laughs) And then he says, you have to trust this, not because you can see it. But purely on my account, because I'm the one that's telling you, and I've got like, we've got maybe a hundred people who also believe this. What's that sound like? You know, it reminds me of, it reminds me of, have you ever seen um, Night at the Museum? (laughs) Tells you how old my kids are. (laughs) So in Night at the Museum, you remember Larry? Is it Ben Stiller? Is that who it is? Yeah, Larry. He's, He's the night watchman. He's the guard. But all the mannequins come to life at night. And so there's one point in the movie near the end where he, like, comes up to Rebecca, who's a historian. Do you remember this? And he basically decides, that's it. I'm going for it. I'm going to tell her the truth. I'm going to tell her the mannequins come to life. And he does. That's exactly what this message was like. He tells her, and it's such a ridiculous message. It's so stupid that she says, either you are utterly insane or you're making fun of me. You remember that's her response. She says, you've got, you're making fun of me. Make fun of the old historian. Yeah, I, I get it. And she just storms off, walking away. It's, it's madness. It doesn't make any sense. It's crazy. And one of the reasons the crucifixion is crazy is because in the ancient world, crucifixion was so odious, it was so reprehensible, it was so horrific, you couldn't even talk about it in polite company. Talking about a guy dying on a cross as a public criminal, a common criminal, like, this was the, the death reserved for um, pagans. Uh, uh, this was the death reserved for um, aliens, barbarians, slaves, common criminals. Talking about that would be like going to a dinner party this weekend and saying, hey, on my way in here, I saw a dead dog carcass and there were like some rats outside eating the, the dog carcass. That's how people would have responded to that with a visceral reaction like, hey, can you go in the other room and talk to somebody else, please? <laughs> That's kind of how they would have responded. No Roman citizen could be crucified. It was associated only with shame. And so think about it. No self-respecting Jew would have imagined that the God who created the world and the God who was redeeming the world, the God who was going to come back and bring his king to Jerusalem to restore his people to himself, who was going to bring his Messiah, would take that Messiah and kill him in an ignominious way, in a shameful, reprehensible way. No one that was Jewish in their right mind would have believed it. 
But Messiah crucified was like an oxymoron. It's a contradiction in terms. That's what he says it a couple times in this passage. Christ crucified. Christ crucified. And we're so used to hearing it. We have our crosses that we wear. We have, um, we see them on the top of church buildings. But this was a contradiction in terms. It should have shocked the living daylights out of them. It would have, and it did. And that's why people rejected his message. Not only the Jews, however, but there there wouldn't be a self-respecting Greek who would have assumed that his gods, like the pantheon of immortals, you know, Zeus and Hera and Ares and all those guys remember from when you were in ninth grade studying that stuff. Those guys were immortal. They did really cool things that they would come down and be associated with criminals and traitors and national terrorists, essentially, would submit themselves to torture. That didn't make sense. And it didn't sound like any of the clever philosophies. I don't have time to get into all of them, but it doesn't sound like Epicureanism. It doesn't sound like Stoicism. It doesn't sound like Cynicism. In the ancient world, the Christian message would have looked like sheer madness. And it's not so different in the modern world. It's not so different in the contemporary world. But here's what Paul makes clear. It looks like madness because this was the radical reversal that God had been been intending all, all along. God had been intending to do something radical. And now by crucifying the Messiah, he's doing what he said he was going to do. He is beginning the final judgment. So if you go back and you're to read your Old Testament, you see that God is constantly calling a people to himself. And there's another people that he says, you are not my people. But here what he's saying is... At this point in history, in crucifying the Messiah, God is beginning a new era. He's sifting the world into two groups. Notice how binary this is. There are two groups. There are the righteous and those who are wicked. There are the saved and there are the damned. There are the my people and the not my people. And what separates the two is not how smart they are. It's not how good they look. It's not how much money they have. It's their relationship to the cross of Christ. It's what they think about and how they own a suffering, bleeding, dying Messiah. Look at verse 19. He says, this is what God was going to do all along. So he quotes the Old Testament. He says um, in verse 19, it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. What had Israel been, been guilty of? They were guilty of trusting themselves. They were guilty of following their own path. They were guilty of relying on foreign powers to help them. They were guilty of not listening to God and worshiping idols. And it was his intention all along to take that sort of self-important, self-congratulatory thinking and crush it, bring it to nothing. So even though human wisdom and self-reliance were the very things that the Corinthians were taking pride in, a new possibility had actually arrived. Another way had actually arrived. This way didn't exist until now. It didn't exist until this point in history. I mean, I could see Paul. They must have thought he was crazy. He's probably jumping up and down. It used to be this way. Now it's this way. Something totally unexpected. Something apocalyptic. Something eschatological. Whatever word you can think of to think about it. The world used to be one way. Now the world is another way. The world is never going to be the same again. And those who have seen the cross can never see the world in the same way again. It's an impossibility. The only litmus test. What's the litmus test, Paul says? The cross. The cross of Jesus Christ. And then he says, look, who can speak this way? Who can speak and respond to this when when God himself has spoken in such a definitive way? And that's where verse 20 and 21 comes in. 
says, where are the wise ones? Where, where am I here? Verse 20. Where's the wise? Where are the scribes? Where are the debaters? Where are the people with well-thought-out philosophies? Where are the people who are specialists in the law? Where are the people who are good at rhetoric? These are the talkers. Where are the New York Times columnists? Where are the pundits? Where are the people that we see on TV? None of them can speak. Why not? For in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through its own wisdom. God did this on purpose. Look at that. In verse 21, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, the foolishness of what we preach, to save those who believe. Here's, the, here's why. Why did God do this? That's the question. Why did God do this? Because no human would have ever thought of doing it this way. No human would have ever cooked up this idea. It's too crazy. It's too ridiculous. No one could start with the basic building blocks. No one could start with self and arrive here. And you can think of this as simplistically as you want or in sophisticated ways. You may have a personal philosophy that says, hey, what goes around comes around, and that's just how you roll. You can't start there and get it to the cross. You can't start there and get to God. You may be a highly educated person with a philosophy major, and you want to say, hey, look at Descartes. That's exactly what Descartes was trying to do. He was trying to build a first foundation. I think, therefore, I am, and I'm going to start there, and then I'm going to get to God. It doesn't work. Paul says, you cannot arrive at the cross. And he, like, rather handily dismisses the entire history of Western philosophy, <laughs> like in one column. And what did they do? They laughed. They laughed. They laughed him out of town. And God did this for his own glory, because otherwise we would set up a system that, listen, domesticates God and abuses everybody else. If we become kings, we are throwing God down, and we're going to wind up hurting everybody else around us. Look what he says. Paul says, the Jews demanded a sign. That means, what does that mean? They were interested in political power. We talked about that a few weeks ago. That means they were looking for what's in it for me. I want to evaluate you. I want to put myself above God. I want God to fit into my standards. But if your question is, what's in it for me? And the answer is ever less than you expected, then you have excused yourself and can throw away the whole thing. But God says, no, there's not a tragedy that you don't understand that can happen. There's not a thing in this world, as painful as it may be, that can separate you from me should you submit to me. And you have to ask yourselves, are you, are you demanding God? Are you demanding God that he come to you on your own terms? Are you saying, yes, God, I will do what you say if, if you take away this pain, if you take away this tragedy, if you show yourself in some great way? Be careful. That, to me, this characterizes almost all of American religion, whether conservative or whether liberal. We're constantly saying, I will follow God if he submits to my political right-wing agenda. And, and, you know, or I will submit to God if, he's, if, if he promotes, and I could use him for my left-wing agenda. But both are the same. Both get shattered. Both get demolished at the cross. You can't take what's peripheral and move it to the center. Paul says the cross is at the center. The power of God is at the center. What Jesus has revealed is at the center. And you have to interpret everything else on those standards. And it's amazing. He says this is not something that we share. This is not something that we sit around at a campfire and sort of sing kumbaya about. It has to be preached. It has to be proclaimed. This passage is as much about anything about preaching. And I could, um, 
almost fall on my knees and weep to think that he would use a foolish man like me to convey this message, to convey these truths. It is the word and the wisdom of God that will pull you out of the limited word of self, the limited world that you have constructed for yourself. And look what he says about the Greeks. The Greeks seek wisdom. They thought, like we said, they can establish some sort of explanatory system that was airtight, that couldn't, you couldn't poke any holes in it. And again, you can name all the philosophies that you want. But the point here is that none of them will lead you to the cross. At risk of overstating the case, but I, I don't think it can be overstated. Um, let me give you this quote. It comes from D.A. Carson. Look what he says. He, he says, what place does the cross have in communism? What place does the cross have in capitalism? Does systematic hedonism lead anyone to the cross? What about dogmatic pluralism? Will secular humanism lead anyone to the most astonishing act of divine self-disclosure that has ever occurred, the cross of Christ? And then here's what he says. It's not that those things are all terrible in themselves. He says, whatever the merits and demerits of these various systems, they exhaust their resources on a superficial level. Think about that. Think about that all day and night. They don't reconcile men and women to the living God, and nothing is more important than that. that. That's the end of the quote. If you're a Christian here, you, you must maintain this message. You must return to this message. The offense of the cross should be this message. It may be laughable. It may be ridiculous. People may reject you, but don't let them reject you because of your political view. Don't let them reject you because of how much beer you do or do not drink. Don't let them reject you because some minor issue. Let them reject you because you bow down to the living God who would bring himself down, kill, crush, and demolish the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, before bringing him to life again. Let that be the offense. And cling to it, run to it, look at it, cross, 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 cross. And if you're not a Christian here today, I I want you to, I want to challenge you just a little, and you can come talk to me later if my challenge isn't fair, but I want you to challenge you not to take a slingshot and sort of attempt to pull the slingshot back and poke holes at weaknesses that you think you see in the Christian system. Okay, because I feel like that's what scholars do a lot of times. They'll take one issue. Looks like the Israelites killed a lot of people in the Old Testament so therefore, the whole system must come crumbling down. Or I might say, like, Matthew doesn't, doesn't line up with Mark. I think there's some contradictions there. That the whole system's got to come tumbling down. So what that's like is like taking little slingshots and poking holes in them. My challenge is this to you. Get to the cross first. Go inside the system. See it through and through from the very center. And then come back and look at those challenges and see where you, go, where, where you are. See, you've got to deal with Christianity as a whole system entirely. Think of this. Your, 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 your personal philosophy could be do unto others as they would do unto you. I mean, I mean Jesus said that. <laughs> but without a cross, you have nothing. You have nothing. You have something that someone else could have thought of, not the revelation of God on high without the cross. Look at verse 25. All of us, Christian or non-Christian, need to ask ourselves, what do I believe? And do these beliefs simply exist so I can control my environment, promote myself, 
congratulate myself and make myself more comfortable. God says, the foolishness of God, the ridiculousness of God is wiser than everything that man could muster. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Go to the cross and allow it to shape the way you think of Christianity. Okay. Point two. Don't worry, there's only two points. There's not three today. Point two. Since God revealed himself at the cross, let the cross shape not only what you believe, but who you are. Okay. Right now, you could conceivably think that this is very bad news. That this is weighty news. That this is heavy. Some of your faces look heavy. Maybe you're just tired of listening. (laughs) It's really fun to be up front because you get to see everyone's concentrating face. (laughs) Sometimes it looks like, I'm kind of (laughs) confused. Okay. You might think that, um, here's what you might think. Hey, Dwayne, you're asking me to believe a ridiculous message. And not only that, but on account of this message, abandon my entire worldview. Yes. Unequivocally. Yes. You're not asking people who are not Christians. We're not asking them to slightly realign their lives. We're asking them to radically realign their lives. Let's not be apologetic about that. That's exactly what we're doing. Now, why would anyone want you to do that? (laughs) Because meeting Jesus at the cross changes what you alone are powerless to change. It changes the one thing that you can't change yourself, and that's your broken human heart. The cross changes hearts. Look at verses 26 through 31. Uh, Rather than reading all of them, I just want you to kind of scan back through. I want you to see how much grace is present in this passage. I want you to see how much God is doing in this passage, how much he is showing his perspective. He is, um, he is taking people the world would have scorned, and he's making them his own. He's transforming them into the image of his son and pouring out on them blessings after blessings, and what they receive is qualitatively different. It's not just quantity. It's not just more of the human thing. It's something else entirely, streams of living water. Look what he says. Paul says, consider your calling. And look what he, he, there's just this list. God chose what is foolish. He chose what is weak. He chose what is low to shame the wise and to shame the strong. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And Steve addressed this um, calling in his sermon last week in a really powerful way. This is the voice of the one who would call Lazarus and raise him from the dead simply by the power of his own voice. He is calling out to you. This is the voice of the one who would take Ezekiel and say, preach to a valley of dry bones and call them to life. God is saying in this passage, and Paul is saying, God takes things that were not and he makes them into things that are. He takes things that are not, and he makes them into things that are. Only at the cross will you be restored. Only there can you understand who you were truly designed to be. So the whole story has to come come into focus. And the story is really simply said. God is the creator of the universe, and he rules over it as king. He created humans for a purpose. See, the problem with, um, with all of our scientific systems is we're so worried about cause and effect that we forget purpose. Like if you want to explain a watch, right, how do you explain what a watch is? We, we tend to say, hey, there's a, little, there's a little gear here, and it makes this hand spin around, and now I understand the watch. 
But if you talk about a watch and you never say the purpose for the watch, it's here to tell time. You haven't explained that thing. You haven't defined that thing. So God, as king of the universe, says, I am going to create humans. I didn't have to. I wanted to so that I could enjoy them. And I'm going to set them up as little kings to rule over the earth for me on my behalf. They're created in my image. And what that means is you have dignity. God has a job for you to do. But you have humility. You're not God. What happened? What did they do? They said, no, we want to dethrone God. We want to set ourselves up as the king of kings so that we could evaluate him. And then there was death and chaos and ruin that ensued. And here's what God did. This king, this creator, he decided he would restore these broken would-be kings to the place that he intended them to be. And that restoration that's going throughout the whole Old Testament finds its climax. It finds its high point in the cross of Jesus Christ. I mean, it's, it's madness. It really is madness. God himself acts like a madman as he pursues you, as he comes to you, as he invites you to worship him, and as he paves a way for that to happen. He sent his prophets that are rejected and killed. He sends one leader and king after another who the people reject and who the people, who, who the people will not listen to. And then he says, I'm going to send my own son to suffer and to die, rejected, despised, like the old hymn, stricken. He was smitten. He was afflicted. This is the way that I will bring you to glory so that you would be the person I've called you to be so that you could worship me and find yourself in me. And here's the, here's the amazing thing. So there's a God level there of what he's doing, but it levels the human playing field in a way that no other human system will. Maybe the analogy is helpful. <laughs> what it feels like we're doing is, if I could use another um, literary illustration, one of, one of my favorite images from Carson McCullers' Heart is a Lonely Hunter. If you guys have read that, it's the main character is a little like nine-year-old girl who lives in the deep south, and she's looking for beauty, and she's happy. She, she wants to find fulfillment and happiness. And what she does is she um, sits out on her neighbor's porch, and she'll just listen to all the beautiful songs that are coming through the radio and everything like that. And she decides she's going to make a violin out of an old ukulele and some guitar strings. And it's, it's amazing to watch this little girl because each night she adds a little bit to it. And she's trying as hard as she can to make it into a violin, but she can't. It's totally futile. There's nothing that she can do. And, and watching this happen to the little girl is almost, cr- it's crushing. It's heartbreaking because she's trying to do something that she doesn't have the resources to do. She can't fulfill her dreams. And here's what I mean when I say this levels the playing field entirely. You don't get in on count of self-fulfillment. You don't get in on account of how many of your dreams you've actually fulfilled. You don't get in on account of your intelligence. You don't get in on account of your education. You don't get in on account of how young you are or how beautiful you look or how much money you have. And the flip side of that is amazing because it means you will not be excluded just because you don't have the right parents or you don't have enough money. God is receiving into his kingdom powerless people, desperate people, Sick people, broken people, people who are taking these crushed ukuleles of the world and holding them up. If only they could become a violin. He is taking the abused, the ashamed, and the overwhelmed. Do you feel abused? 
Do you feel ashamed? Do you feel overwhelmed? Do you feel like the record of your sin is crying out against you? It doesn't matter how much shame there is. That's the message of the cross. It doesn't matter how much abuse there was because he took it. He experienced it. Because he experienced it, he, Jesus, is the only one who can deal with it, who takes your record, who takes your heart and says, I will give you a new record. I will give you an entirely new record. I will give you an entirely new heart. Insert your personal philosophy here. Whichever one it is, whatever you can think of, your morals, your religion, your worldview, your standards, your judgment, and I challenge you. Does everybody think of one? I challenge you. Try to get it to take away your shame. Get communism to take away your shame. Get Epicureanism to take away your shame. Get what goes around comes around to take away your shame. Get them to take your guilt. Get them to take your fear. They can't. They won't because they can't. They're not enough. They are not sufficient. Only the cross removes your shame. Only the cross removes your fear. Only the cross removes your guilt and gives you a new perfect record. And it happens not on a superficial way. Listen, so what I'm telling you is I'm saying, hey, get as close to the cross as you can. And what you're going to find there is you will find pain, you will find suffering, and what he's going to do is he will expose your pain, and he's going to expose your suffering, and he's going to expose the consequences of what you have done and who you are. But, but the promise is this, that if you are found in him, if you are found in him there at that place, then you will be united with him and therefore raised with him. You will be raised with him to new life and his spirit will come into you. And it's a spirit from outside yourself that breaks drastically in. It is like, I mean, imagine that your heart is like, um, think of a prison over at, um, in Fairmount. I was the, the other day, I was sipping some coffee at mug shots early in the morning and noticed the prison. What's it called again? I, I can't even, I can't hear you guys. There's too much. What is it? Eastern State Penitentiary, thank you, yes, yeah. Imagine Eastern State Penitentiary. Imagine just like, what would it take to have it crushed to the ground? Could you imagine? It, it's so old, it's big, it's been there for so long. What would it take to have, that? that's your heart. Your heart is captured, your heart is a prison. Your heart is enslaved to sin, it's in bondage to sin. You're turning to your sin again and again and again. And Jesus is saying, that's what I'm talking about, apocalyptic. I'm going to take the prison and, and destroy it. I'm going to drop a bomb on it. I'm going to blow it away and construct from there an entirely new building, an entirely new garden, an entirely new heart, an entirely new person. I am bringing you into fellowship with me so that you can worship and enjoy me forever. If you are found in him, your life will be in Christ. And then all the blessings flow. Look what Paul says in verse 30. You will have the wisdom of God. You will have his righteousness and you standing before him. You will have sanctification, the ability to obey. All of this is redemption. Suddenly you moved from those who are perishing into the category of those who are being saved. And it's no wonder that Paul, when he comes to the church in Corinth, decided to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. That doesn't mean he doesn't think the resurrection is important. It doesn't mean that he thinks that there's no other minor doctrine that's important at all. But he says, if I can't have anything else, 
If I can't have anything else, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus at the cross. And then let me see everything else from there. Let me see everything else from there and interpret everything else from there. I've been thinking that Paul was probably afraid. He says, I came with fear and trembling. He may have been overwhelmed. But he knew that true power comes from God's spirit. And it doesn't require effort on the parts of the listeners. It requires faith and belief that it is true. A willingness to set aside your sins and whatever it is that you're clinging to. So I have the feeling that you may be overwhelmed. I have the feeling that you may be burdened. I have the feeling that that, that there's too much. And what we do when that happens is we like cling as tightly as we can to ourselves and our hopes and our dreams that aren't coming to fruition. But Jesus was weak. He came in weakness. God loves weak people. And he comes to them in that weakness and asks you to release, release that grip. And like, it, it was very challenging to me when we were studying um, this Wednesday, the book club was meeting and we were talking and I realized that the times of my life when I've been the most dependent upon God have all been the most painful experiences that I've come to know. But I spend most of my life trying to comfort myself and make me feel be- make myself feel better, you know? And so as I think about, like, guilt that comes from parenting, as I think about what, what my future may hold, what's going to happen to me beyond liberty, when I think of um, just all sorts of uncertainties and open-ended things that could exert fear and guilt and pain, I try to run from them. But Jesus is saying, I am there for you in them. Depend upon me. Trust in me. Put your faith in me. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Okay, let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would help us to find strength and weakness we are um, really good at like playing to our strengths. So we do what comes naturally, what we think makes sense, what looks best to us. But you have said, in brokenness, I will bring restoration. In weakness, I'm going to bring a, a dynamic message to change the world. In preaching and in foolishness, I'm going to bring my wisdom to bear. I pray that you would make us as a congregation those who run to you and depend to you and look on you. As some have said, for everyone, look at our sin. Let's just take... Tim looks at the cross um, and see there uh, all of our shame, but you receiving all of the glory so that we wouldn't take any of that to ourselves. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.